You're listening to The Front Lines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. got a lot of feedback from last episode. We're going to keep this conversation going because I think it's an important one. If you haven't listened to episode five, I strongly encourage you to do so. And I would also suggest that you listen to episode four for a little bit of context on reconciliation. I've got a couple more guests that I think you'll enjoy, but before we get to them, I'd like to first share a voicemail that I received. Hi, my name is Grant Lamont. I live in Whistler, BC, and I'm just uh, giving a little feedback on uh, Brent's piece on uh, trail names. Um, I've had quite a history with mountain biking in British Columbia, and uh, along with Colorado, and uh, I think that, you know, first of all, I think in our bubble-wrapped world, people are far too sensitive these days, and uh, we have to sort of meet halfway and uh, not kowtow to all their howlings of things that offend them because some people are offended by everything. So, you know, I don't think that's a place to go. But, you know, in the history of mountain biking out here anyways, I think that a lot of the names and some of them that people are referring to, like um, Severed Dick and Cunt Buster, yes, I'm going to use those words, um, those are historically created to shock people and a lot of the boys in the cove did that because uh they were young and free-spirited and silly and they were doing their own thing so i think that you know those names have historical context and they shouldn't be changed um next on the list would be you know going forward how do we make trail names less offensive for people well i think that's happening now you don't see the same sort of uh, stuff going on, and uh, I think a lot of the names have historical context to them. Here in Whistler, um, we have a whole bunch of trails, such as Shit Happens, No Girly Man, Big Kahuna, White Knuckles, and all that type of stuff. And and the fellow who built those trails, a guy named Dan Swanstrom, uh, I gather was going through some tough personal times. So, you know, it reflected... Uh, uh, his current state and condition, and uh, I think it's great because everybody has tough times, and uh, you know, and I think that we have a rich history and it's short, and uh, we just have to make sure that as we go forward as a culture that uh, we be more inclusive and don't offend people so much. So I think we're doing that now. I think this is a bit of a red herring, and uh, let's just think of fun creative names that describe the experience. Anyways, thanks. Signing off. Bye. Thanks, Grant. I think you touched on a couple of great things. Trail names should be fun, first and foremost. I also think that trail names with some edge aren't necessarily bad. I think a lot of folks are getting hung up on the trail name portion of this discussion. The example was a trail name that was socially and culturally insensitive and was excluding a specific person in this case, indigenous women. It wasn't necessarily a war on trail names. It wasn't a war on sexual innuendos. It wasn't a war on trail names that had cuss words in it. What's inappropriate is to target one specific demographic and be insensitive to them. 
When I launched the last episode, I received a fair amount of negative feedback. The argument that you have a First Nations friend or live near a reserve growing up does not give you the social license to decide what is or isn't offensive to that particular group. And one representative from that group can't decide what isn't offensive. The argument that more riders is just going to clutter up the trails might be valid. But if we're trying to keep trails for ourselves by being sexist or racist, then let's just start wearing hoods and burning crosses. Keep your secret trails to yourself, but you don't have to be a bigot too. The argument that changing trail names would disrespect trail builders is not okay. It is not appropriate to disrespect one group in order to respect another. And this example, perhaps we should be more concerned about respecting the First Nations people who are the first stewards of this land. And finally, if you start a sentence with, I don't mean to sound racist, or I'm not a sexist, but you're probably about to say something you shouldn't, and you should probably stop talking. It was Friday that I launched the episode. On Saturday, after receiving so much negative feedback, I decided to share the podcast again on my Facebook, this time with a plea to hear from those that feel diversity is a good thing. Here's what I wrote. I'm positive that not all mountain bikers are racist and sexist. And I'm also pretty sure that not all white male mountain bikers are racist or sexist. Unfortunately, I haven't heard as much from those who support inclusivity and reconciliation. The dialogue created by my most recent podcast episode has made me very aware of the oblivious and privileged culture that appears to be ingrained in mountain biking. It's no wonder this sport is not very diverse. It's become very apparent that mountain biking is not as safe of a space that I thought it was. I won't say that being silent is as bad as spewing hate, but by remaining silent, we're not helping. And I no longer wish to remain silent. I believe that mountain biking is for everyone, every race, culture, gender orientation, or sexual preference. And if you're with me, then speak up. And thankfully, I received an outpouring of positive response. And, and I want to thank all of you who, who shared your support. It gave me hope and inspiration to keep this conversation going. I'm more than likely preaching to the choir on this one, and unfortunately, I feel like the most vocal naysayers aren't actually listening to the show before they bang out their comments on Facebook. My hope is that those of you listening understand the need for diversity in mountain biking. But if you don't, the next two episodes is about why diversity is so important and how we can make that happen. I'm your host, Brent Hillier. This is episode six of Frontlines. Eric McKeegan is the tech editor for Dirt Rag and Bicycle Times, and his article for Dirt Rag, called A Presidential Speech for the Bike Industry, was a call-out for diversity and inclusivity. If you'd like to read the article yourself, I definitely recommend doing so. You can find the link in the show notes. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brent. I appreciate it. Yeah, so in your article, you wrote that uh, the basic duty of the cycling media is to be the change that we want to see. And what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, that's that's always a, a phrase that's used in a lot of things. And I think that since we get to represent and speak to more people than the average cyclist, that we have more responsibility to portray things in a way that we would like to see them being, emphasizing things that uh, we think are important. And in, in this case, I was looking at the way that, you know, the, the generic cyclist is 
looked at as it because there there is a, a you know a sort of generic cyclist who's a you know 30 to 40 year old guy who is fit and caucasian and rides nice bikes and i think that while that is a valid representation of mountain biking there are also other valid representations and there's plenty of room for a wider group of people to be represented but that that takes work um it's i mean we we have a definite problem that you know most of our staff falls within that demographic and when it comes time to shoot photos and do things it's much easier to grab someone from staff and shoot photos than actually go out and try to find someone that isn't within that demographic to do it so it's it's uh it, it can be a challenge but it's important your article is is you know really discussing and, and and promoting kind of inclusion and acceptance yet and correct me if I'm wrong it, it kind of had a bit of a trump-esque tone to it and and why did you choose to write it in in that way well at, at the time this was sort of it maybe midway through this was after the primary campaigns were over and I mean obviously sometimes you need a narrative device and some satire is is uh, sometimes pretty easy. Uh, one of my co-workers, the art director, Stephen Haynes, actually brought this up as an idea. It, it, it seemed like a, an interesting way to present it, where you were taking the, at times, loud rhetoric that was very much the opposite of what I was discussing, that I was talking about inclusion, and Trump is often talking about protecting us from outside threats, that, that this was more about inclusion and trying to open ourselves up to people that were not like us. So it was, you know, sometimes you write stuff to get attention. This seemed like it needed attention without some, without a bit of a, a hook. I don't think it would have gotten as much attention. Yeah. And the, the word that you used is, is broification. And, and I've, you know, I've heard the word passed around and, and over the last couple of weeks, well, well, this podcast has been diving into this discussion, that words come up a couple of times. And can, can you describe what that is? Like, what is broification? Well, this, I mean, some of that, I mean, I, I've got to admit that some of that probably came from the outside article that was, uh, of a similar bent, but maybe perhaps was a bit more, um, gear oriented and how gear snobbery sort of prevents things from happening. And I was less interested in that, in that idea and more so about that. It's not the gear. That's the issue. It's, it's the, it's the bros. Um, and I, this isn't always a, um, I don't want people to feel defensive. Um, I think as humans, we have a tendency to, without consciously doing it to be comfortable and put ourselves in positions when we're around people that are like us, that, that that's, sort of how it works and it does take effort to break outside of that mold and i think mountain biking has gotten pretty comfortable over the years as being a male-dominated sport but as it's aged that it started out as very much a non-mainstream sport that seemed to be welcoming to a lot of different people that as it's aged and technology has improved that it, it has I don't want to say narrowed. It's there's still lots of people that ride, but I think it does come down to the the idea that the the way it's portrayed is as a very exclusive sport where you need expensive things and to be a certain type of person to really fit in, and that that isn't always the case. That um, that I think we can do a better job, and in some ways, it's not so much that that's the way this sport is. Is that this the, that things are maybe a little different than it is portrayed in, 
in, in the media. One of the examples that I have, have liked to tell people is uh, we do a mountain bike festival on the East Coast uh, called Dirt Fest. Um, the original one was in Pennsylvania. We're having a second one in uh, West Virginia this year. But it's been going on for, I think, eight years now. This might be our eighth year. And we've gotten a lot of West Coast bike companies to come out. And this is their first big sort of introduction to a big event. It's about 2,500 people come out. So it's a really big cross-section of, of, of riders. And I think it was Scott Nicole I was talking to. And uh, we were standing around. And, you know, he said, you know, when you come to an event like this in the West Coast, you know, most of the bikes that go by are around maybe $7,000 retail somewhere there. And then, but you come out here to the East Coast and the average bike's around and he kind of looks at me and I said, yeah, probably around $700, which is probably a little low, but there's definitely a lot of people here that ride seriously, but do not have super expensive bikes. And it's, it's hard to portray those people because in media, because it's hard, you know, no one's that interested in reading or seeing bikes that are 10 years old. But that, that's sort of that that's sort of what I was after, that we don't the brovocation of the sport is is not any one specific thing as much as the idea that, that it's an exclusive thing and that the sport can be more in inclusive and portrayed as that in better ways than it is now. Yeah. Yeah. It's you know, it, that's a similar topic of discussion that came up when um, a previous guest of mine, Patrick Lucas, he was going into First Nations communities and and trying to develop more mountain bike trails and, and bike parks. And, and a lot of people were saying like, well, are you just bringing an expensive sport to a community that can't afford it? And and I think you know, what was, what was said is that these kids have bikes, they're, they're riding, they might not be high end bikes. And, and maybe that's, maybe that's something where we need to kind of get our eyes up as, as mountain bikers who have, maybe we work in the industry or maybe we've been biking for a long time. We've invested in, in this sport financially, but, but there's not a necessary need. There, there's, there's not, there's not a need to have that high end bike to participate in this sport. Right. And, and I think when, when we discuss diversity, it sounds like, um, you know, mountain biking is, is primarily white. Uh, and, and the argument that I get from, from people as well, is that just the environment that mountain biking happens in? And is, is that a situation where maybe it's just something where mountain biking is kind of happening in primarily white communities, primarily middle-class communities or upper-middle-class communities. And, and so it's just kind of a result of its environment. I think sometimes it, discussions like this can make people feel really defensive. And I, that, mm. that isn't my intention at all. Um, you know, we, we mountain, the, the, the mountain bikers that exist, right, I, I think are often a result of their environment. Some of it you do need at least a basic bike to start with. And if that money isn't around, it isn't going to happen. So it does make more sense that this, this type of activity is more often the result of middle-class households. Um, but I, I, I think that there are lots of sports that when you actually look at the sports themselves are not cheap that are accessible. Um, basketball courts, basketball itself is a cheap sport, but public courts cost money at some point to build. Um, football. Football involves a lot of gear, involves referees, involves stadiums. 
but there's lots of public schools that have these type of things. And that perhaps that, that if, if the attitude about this changes, uh, NICA, I think, is a very good example in the U.S. I don't believe there's any Canadian uh, things. It's the high school mountain bike leagues that are springing up all, all, all over the United States. Yeah, we have many similar ones in, in British Columbia. And, and I know I think they're starting to happen a little bit more on the East Coast as well. Okay. And I think that's that's a way to, for lack of a better word, maybe democratize the, the sport. That if you start in high school and there's some support for the sport, you know, getting people to the trails, maybe getting the trails closer to the people, which I think is actually a more important thing. Mm. It's, in some ways, it's not the bikes. Used bikes are can be found relatively cheap that are very functional. But if you have to drive to the trails, that cuts out a lot of people that, that could be riding. But I think that, right, that, that changing the attitude of uh, the sport is going to also require changing the attitude about maybe um, that it's not an inaccessible sport. If, if there's more, you know, more social acceptance and then perhaps some infrastructure spending that we're going to see a wider group of people riding. To kind of bring it back to, to the, the main focus of, of this podcast, which is trail associations. It, it sounds like local trails or, or what we refer to as like community trails, not necessarily these big destinations, um, these big spots where you're going out and you're going to spend a whole day out there riding. But these these local riding centers, these local trail centers that are within uh, municipalities, within communities, that, that seems to be the way to really get this out there. Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. Right. I, you know, I, I think the bike industry in general, which has been flat for many years, it's not because we don't have the right mix of product. It's not because there isn't super cool mountain bikes and great places to ride them. Is that, that, that people don't feel safe riding bikes on the road and people don't either don't know about the trails or feel like they're inaccessible due to their distance. And it's not a close enough thing that they can try out to see how they like it in a, without making a major investment in products or time. A lot of times mm-hmm. it, it is just time. You know, if, if you're yeah. a busy person, I mean, I would ride much less if I didn't have a place that I could ride my bike to out my front door. Even though it's part of my job to ride bikes, it, it can be very hard to make the time investment if you have to drive an hour, 45 minutes, or even half an hour, loading your bike up in the car and all the things involved with that versus get dressed, ride, and ride out your door. Building and developing trail networks that are that are out a little ways. Sometimes there's more space, there's more land, and those can be easier to develop. Where when you're developing trails in a community, uh, there's a lot more red tape. Uh, there's there's a lot more kind of land uh, managers that need to be taken into account and need to be worked with. And and so it's it seems like we're kind of in a catch twenty two though, because if we're gonna go to these communities and say like, look, we want to develop mountain bike trails within this community. And they're going to look at it and say, well, why would we want to do something that only caters to a specific group of people? You know, it's, it's like we almost want to do this to, to change who we are. But, but how can we convince the communities that, that this is a good thing and not just for, um, you know, rich, middle-aged white guys kind of thing, right? So how do we, how do we get that, that balance? You know, the, the two go hand in hand, but it's can we get one while we're still this way? I, right. I mean, that's that's definitely a very difficult situation that from the inside, we, we feel like we're a very mainstream sport. But from the outside, right, it does seem like it's a very niche thing. I mean, sometimes 
well, maybe it, it could be looked at as a bit of a backdoor into this thing, but I've been, I get to travel a lot and um, see these trails that are being built often near population centers and what they can do for economies. Um, I was just up in, in Crosby, Minnesota. I went to the Imba Summit. Yeah, in Bentonville, yeah. yeah. And both of these places have made public investments in public trails and have seen good economic return on them. And that if perhaps sometimes these, these arguments seem to be easier to make that not only will these trails provide recreational opportunities for the population, that they will also bring money into areas that are perhaps struggling economically, that the, the trails don't just, people don't just show up and ride bikes and leave. They, they want to spend money and do things. They want a beer after the ride. They want, they want food before the ride. Yep. Things like that. Um, mm. So it it's perhaps an indirect route, but dealing with government bureaucracy often seems to be that way. That, <laughs> that maybe your end goal might be different than your uh, tactics, but as long as your tactics aren't creating more issues, then mm. maybe that's an okay thing. Yeah. I think a lot of, of longtime riders are resistant to the development of more beginner trails. And, and that's something that, uh, I mean, that's a, that's a whole other discussion in a lot of ways, but it, it sounds like there's, there can be no such thing as too many beginner trails, especially when they're close to urban centers. And maybe if, if, we as mountain bikers can understand kind of the end goal of this sport of, of, of being more diverse, being more inclusive. And that's why these trail networks are so important. Maybe we can be a little bit more understanding of why we're not getting a new double black diamond trail built right in our, uh, in our network. And, and I think there is a happy medium. Um, one of the things I noticed in Bentonville is we did ride a brand new trail system there that was just opened as, as this event happened. And that trail system was, you know, the sort of in the stack loop. And there have been a lot of pushback. I've, I wrote a column about how, you know, some of the NAR is missing from trails. But uh, the... This was, you know, built to IMBA standards, and it was a really awesome set of trails that you would kind of climb to a central point, pick a descent from green to blue to black. And I rode a few of them, and they were incredible fun. I mean, there was challenging rocky stuff and switchbacks. There was easy flow trails. There was jump trails. There was, like, old-school drops. I mean, things that were, uh, I think, would have kept it up kept a wide range of riders very happy that to me is the ultimate thing around cities is to be able to build trails that keep a lot of people happy and this was not built in a large area i'm guessing it was probably under under 400 acres i'm guessing of property there was not huge amounts of elevation loss or gain but hiring a professional trail builder to come in and design and build these trails seems to be a, a way that works very well and perhaps that's if the, when these plans start, that the plan is to install, maybe not all at once, but tra trails that keep a wide group of riders happy, that perhaps we'll see less, less complaints about those types of things. The last podcast episode, it was, uh, I, I got a lot of negative feedback. I got lots of positive feedback, but I also got a lot of negative feedback. And so I know that this topic of discussion is, is hard to, to share. And so you know, first off, I just want to thank you for for writing this article and for 
for having uh, this kind of come up, especially in in a, a you know a very mainstream as far as mountain biking goes, a very mainstream publication, and and bringing this to the forefront, I think it's really important. I'm sure you've gotten a lot of flack from a lot of people about it, and uh, but thanks for kind of bringing this up. Uh- uh, you're welcome. Uh, the feedback's been surprisingly good. Um, awesome. Maybe less than I would have expected, but I, I did mm. get a lot of positive feedback from people in the industry that I didn't expect. Because sometimes you write things like this and it comes off as very preachy and and, mm-hmm. and I, I really wanted to avoid that. I'm not attempting to call anyone out. I don't find calling people out to be effective in actually changing viewpoints most of the time. And I, I mean, I've, I've got to be careful too. Is as a, you know, I, I'm I'm one of these guys too. I'm, I'm yeah. I get to feel defensive. I find myself feeling defensive at times when these types of things are addressed. Um, but I don't. We're the idea is we're not trying to stop people from riding. We just mostly want to see more people riding and mm. more people feeling welcome. That that doesn't have to lessen the enjoyment of the sport for the people who are already well eric thank you for taking the time to be on the show i really appreciate it no problem thanks for having me have a good one you too so during my conversation with eric i think we stumbled on some key takeaways and i'd like to hear from any listeners who have some thoughts or experience about any of them The first is reaching new riders through mountain bike leagues at the high school level. I think that this is a great way to get kids mountain biking who don't necessarily come from mountain bike families. The second takeaway is developing trails within urban centers or close to communities and municipalities. I think a great start is to begin with skills parks, pump tracks, and dirt jumps. Accessibility is key when growing and diversifying mountain biking, but visibility can be an added benefit. One of the biggest disadvantages to mountain biking is that we aren't visible. We park our cars or ride from home and disappear into the woods only to return tired, dirty, and smiling. Skills parks show just how diverse mountain biking can be and really showcase its value to the community and more importantly, community leaders. Visit the local pump track on a weekend and you'll see just how important mountain biking is to kids and families. And finally, when it comes to facilities and trail developments, we need to portray the economic value to a community. As mountain bikers, we understand the social value of trails, but that can be very hard to convey. When the development of trails can bring economic benefits in the form of tourism or visitor traffic, restaurants, pubs, bike shops, and hotels start seeing an increase in business. And a project that offers that is something that community leaders and land managers can get behind. So if you want to share your views on high school or youth mountain bike leagues, developing urban trails and skills parks or tourism and the economic benefits of mountain biking, then send me an email, brent at bikeski.ca or find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at brentskibikeski. And if you'd like to include your voice, then email me an audio file with your comments, questions, or concerns. My guest next episode will be Umbreen Tarek, the creator of the Instagram account Brown People Camping. We'll be discussing why diversity is so important in the outdoor community. Check her out, give her a follow, and let me know if you have any questions for her. Thanks to Jay Darby for being a huge behind the scenes role in this episode's conversation. He was the inspiration to to talk to Eric. 
And big thanks to my wife, Jennifer, for sharing her views on Facebook and getting right in there with the internet trolls. And once again, big thanks to Lee Rosevere for the song Tech Toys. And last but not least, if you like the show, then rate us on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using to listen to us. And leave us a review. It's not just to make me feel better about myself, but it helps other listeners find us. I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening and happy trails.